Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, November 4th, 2022. This episode of the show is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision Coverage. What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered vision care exams for all members, access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. Plans start as low as $12 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Okay, well, it's great to be here in Annapolis for uh, another Friday. We've got uh, about 400 uh, midshipmen coming over to the Naval Institute tonight for our third of the semester series of warfighter events. We've got uh, two submarine officers coming to, to speak to MIDS about being submariners today. So excited about that. And we're going to do a, a preview of the November issue or a, an overview of the November issue today. So my co-hosts are the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings, retired Navy Captain Bill Bray, and Senior Editor Brian O'Rourke. We're going to highlight and quickly review a few articles in the November issue. Uh, Brian and Bill, I'm not sure if Brian's or uh, Bill's uh, joined us yet, but Brian and Bill, uh, happy Friday. Happy Friday, Bill. Okay, so we're still trying to bring Bill, Bill in. We got some... Uh, some television uh, rabbit ears uh, issues, uh, something's going on with his uh, Chrome browser or something, but he'll join us in a minute. Uh, so let's just get started. Uh, you know, November issue out on the streets, been out there for a few days, getting a lot of web traffic, uh, you know, some pretty interesting uh, things, including the winners of the three, there's Bill, uh, the winners of the three uh, Naval Institute Marine Corps essay contest. Um, uh, th those three essays are in it. Uh, we've got an, an article by the uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, uh, and a number of other things. So uh, let's just start off. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Commandant Berger's article, which is titled, Recruiting Requires Bold Changes. And um, this is one of the, the most candid and bold articles I've seen from a service chief in, in quite some time. Um, he talks about you know, it's uh, he starts off and it's not just about the Marine Corps. It's about the joint force. Right. He he uh, he starts out by saying hey, the Marine Corps struggled to meet its uh, quota this year. Um, but it's not just the Marine Corps, but the other services. And as a joint force together, if any one of those services is struggling to meet its uh, human capital demands, its its manpower demands, then the entire joint force uh, is affected, including the Marine Corps. Uh, and then he, he delves into some, um, uh, you know, a couple of really imp important things. Um, one, he says, you know, the, the problems uh, are, are based in the trust of the American people. Um, and I thought that was uh, really interesting that, that things such as how the United States military pulled out of Afghanistan last year have an impact on the trust of the American people. Uh, some of the high-profile failures uh, and and scandals uh, among the leaders of the uh, of the joint force, you know, such as the Fat Leonard scandal, such as the uh, the drinking water problems. Yeah, he didn't mention that one, but I, it's one that comes to mind for me. Drinking water problems uh, at um, at Camp Lejeune and now out at Red Hill in uh, in Pearl Harbor. Uh, and then he talks about you know the the there's always been generational issues. But he says, uh, you know, there are real generational issues between uh, Gen X, which is now, um, you know, sort of senior Marines, 
uh, Gen Y, which is the, those who are doing the recruiting, and Gen Z, which is those who are being recruited. Um, and, and they're all in different places in terms of uh, media. Uh, they all take in information different, differently, and they all put values on different things in terms of how uh, young people and older people interact with their employer or with the with the military. So those are my initial thoughts, uh, Brian and Bill. Any any thoughts from you on uh, on Commandant Berger? Uh, one of the things that I thought about as I read it was I had this conversation sort of over Twitter the other day with uh, Walker Mills, a frequent proceedings author and a, and a satirist known as uh, Dark Laughter and. Uh, and a Marine. Yeah, yeah. And um, they, Walker was struggling with it a little bit. Dark Laughter was sort of bordering on mocking this. And, you know, I said, in terms of the retention piece of this, it's a bit like showing up at a restaurant and all the patrons are streaming out, right? And who would, um, who would go sit down in that restaurant when everybody's leaving it? You know, one of the one of the criteria for me of a good restaurant is in the off season, are the locals still eating there? Right. And that's kind of the retention problem. The Marine Corps has is everybody sort of heading for the exit, or at least it feels like everybody's sort of heading for the exit. And so when the commandant says we have to work on the quality of life, things that make retention better, I think he's absolutely right. You want to walk into a full restaurant where you have to fight for a seat. And right now the Marine Corps, if general, Burger is to believe, and why wouldn't you believe the commandant on this subject? Um, you know, they don't. The restaurant isn't anywhere close to capacity right now. Yeah, the other one that uh, this is a an issue that's been talked about in proceedings for decades now. Uh, you know, you come out of World War II and and Korea, the percentage of American political leaders who had served in the military was very high, and that has dwindled over the years with a little bit of a rebound, you know, a bounce or a a rebound that ha has happened since, you know, OIF and OEF. You know, you've got a number of young people in uh, in Congress now who who had military service in Iraq and Afghanistan. But um, the 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 separation, the civil civil military divide, if you will, and and General Berger touches on that between um, those who have served, have, know somebody, have somebody in their in their family who's served. That has been a growing percentage of the force over time, um, whereas the percentage of Americans who are probably disassociated from the military uh, has has grown. And so that's, you know, one of the things that the general talks about. I don't want to drop banker on this one too much, but because we're trying to get General Berger on the show, he's been on the show before, and I want to, you know, pose some questions to him. But it, it is a um, it, it's an, an article that's getting a lot of attention. I, I will point out one thing, which is a lot of online comments, particularly on Twitter on it, have said, you know, have blamed the problem on wokeism. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's a discussion uh, to continue. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of young you know, people about whether the military is all woke now. And I think there's a difference in, in opinions, generational opinions about what woke means, right? So yeah. for perhaps uh, older people like Bill, you and I, you know, came to the Naval Academy in the mid 1980s. Um, you know, the, the idea of having, um, you know, gays in the military would have been woke if that word had been used at the time, you know, and now it's, it's a given, right? So what, what is woke? Um, to me, that's a, 
Well, can I, I will add to that. I'm sorry, my camera's not working, but um, uh, a couple things. Uh, so I'm first, last thing first, wokeism, you know, I don't even know what that means um, again, but um, I uh, was looking at the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Navy, you know, the same department. Uh, just, just look at general military training. I looked that up uh, recently. In fiscal year 23, the Navy, um, all Navy commands have to do seven general military training events. There's an additional 11 that commanding officers uh, should do, but it's up to their discretion to fit it in when they can. So that's 18 GMTs in the course of a, of a year. Okay, one of them is on equal opportunity. Uh, another one is on sexual assault prevention. Now, I would ask somebody who thinks the military is too woke, should we not do sexual assault prevention training? Um, the equal opportunity one is the only one I think you could even uh, categorize as woke. Everything else is about force protection, about anti-terrorism, about, you know, all kinds of military training. So that's cybersecurity. Cybersecurity. 5% of the GMT load is anything to do with that. And that's just looking at general military training. You could look at what's taught in boot camp and at what officer session courses. I know at the Naval Academy, um, there's constant uh, charges of wokeism. Uh, but when you dig into the, you know, get your hands dirty and look at the curriculum and what's being taught, it's really hard to find that stuff. Uh, it seems more of a boogeyman that uh, people like to throw out there. Um, but if, let's just say, if you uh, are opposed to EO training in the military. Okay, that you don't think it's necessary or it's overkill. Um, are you really going to advise your son or daughter not to serve the nation because less than 5% of the training they're going to get is something you disagree with? Um, that doesn't seem to me very patriotic. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. Brian, uh, time for one quick one, and then we got to move on to the next thing. Yeah, well, I'm going to cheat and do two. Um, when you talked about... Um, you know, people not knowing people in the military. Uh, Admiral Mullen at our uh, at our history conference five years ago, when he gave his keynote address, he talked about that a little bit. And he said one of the unintended consequences of the BRAC, Base Realignment and Closing Commission, was that uh, the military left a lot of communities where they'd been coaches and volunteers and just people you saw at the grocery store. And as bases got consolidated, the average American had less and less contact with somebody in uniform in a normal in the normal course of life. And he said that's something that nobody foresaw and it's really had an adverse effect. And it's something I haven't seen evidence that anybody's really thinking about since he said that. And I'm sure other people have said it too. Uh, the second thing on the question of wokeism, there's somewhat of a generational thing here. It's not completely confined to older generations and younger generations are fine. It's you know, it's much more nuanced than that. But uh, I have a pretty wide acquaintance in the in all the military services, thanks to my work at that satire publication that I won't name on here. Um, <laughs> Definitely and, uh, the, the military version of the onion, they call it. Um, and I would say there's, I've certainly encountered people who don't want to serve with, you know, women or people or gay people or what, whatever category you want to uh, shoehorn people into. Mostly among people younger than me, and I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you guys, but not much. Uh, what I hear is, can they fight? That's all they want to know. Can they yeah. fight? Right. And they don't want to narrow the recruiting pool to particular categories. The only category they give a bleep about is can they fight? And, 
you know, maybe people a little older than me care a lot about that kind of stuff, but I don't think it has any bearing on what most of the people in uniform today think about any of it. That's a great point. I was sitting at a lunch table at the Naval Submarine League the other day having lunch with a retired uh, admiral who commanded, he was the first commanding officer of the USS Seawolf. So submariner, fast attack guy, right? Very successful. We were talking about, you know, we were talking about this very topic. And one of the things he said is, you know, for me, I got two rules, show up, do your job. That's it. Right. So anyway, I, I, I want to point out uh, Austere Roberto, who is one of our very dedicated listeners. He makes a comment. He says, I agree with 98% of the article, 2% disagreement. And that is on the term apolitical, like Alex Jones versus the Sandy Hook parents. They tried ignoring him and his accolades for years and finally had to confront him. So, you know, that's uh, the point that, that uh, General Berger makes, that the military has got to be apolitical, you know, and that I think you're making the point, Austere Roberto, that, uh, you know, that that holds for a while. But at some point, you got to you got to stand your ground. Right. So interesting point. All right. Well, let's go on to the next one. Uh, Brian, you had a, a couple of articles you wanted to talk about. So what was the first one? The first one is uh, one of the professional notes. Um, the headline title was uh, the LCS advantage for the Navy Marine Corps team. And what stood out for me with this article was just that uh, as with young people in the military today saying, you know, can they fight? What can they do for us? Um, the, the LCS is a pretty widely reviled platform in a lot of quarters. It, it is held up as an example of, you know, a bad acquisition process, a bad concept, all sorts of things. But there are a bunch in the Navy. And this is a great example of people trying to make a chicken salad out of another chicken-related substance. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, for me, I love that people aren't going, oh, it's it's that little something ship. Instead, they're saying, what can we do with it? it does it have any, it, it's not what we wanted it to be, but does it have any value to us? Um, I just, you know, they, I mean, I, I say young people, the authors are a commander and a lieutenant colonel. Um, but, you know, compared to me, they're still relatively young in their 40s. Uh, but I, I thought that one was just a terrific example of the kind of dynamic thinking that people need. Okay, it may, be, it may not be what we wanted, but it's here. Let's make the most of it. Yeah. Um, the other one struck me. Um, it's the uh, it was the from the deck plates uh, column uh, department this month. Standby fire recovering from mistakes, and it was by a Marine Corps corporal, uh, Corporal Hayashi. She writes about uh, her experience becoming an artillery section chief in the Marine Corps and how excited and enthused she was and and how the moment at which she got her MOS and it was artillery, she fell in love with howitzers, you know, and it's and then she talks about having made a mistake. She called out the wrong charge for a shot. And so the tar the shell fell on uh, a very different spot than it was supposed to fall on. Nobody was hurt. Nobody was killed. Nobody was injured. But it was a it was a big mistake, and she lost her uh, her qualification as section chief, and she had to go back into the trenches for a while and then requalify eventually. Um, what struck me about this is how often we hear from uh, our our authors that the Navy and Marine Corps are very unforgiving of mistakes. Uh, people get relieved for cause for all sorts of things. And we, usually we get the generic, 
uh, loss of confidence in the ability to command or, or that kind of thing that doesn't really tell you anything. And I think that's true. But we hear from enlisted personnel about the mistakes they make and recover from a lot without it derailing careers. I mean, the Navy has completely different uniform insignia for people who've made mistakes and people who haven't made mistakes <laughs> right. if they're enlisted, right? The gold and the red stripes. Uh, that tells you something about them, but if you see that on a chief, you know that person really rebounded from something. Um, I, I don't know where I'm going with it, except to say perhaps there's a lesson in the Navy and Marine Corps and the other armed forces for looking at how mistakes by enlisted people who are usually at the pointier end of the stick are dealt with versus people in command. You can lose your job because somebody under your command had a DUI as though you're going to be able to be in the bar with all 150 people from your ship on Friday night and make sure they're all sober before they walk out. So I, 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 I really I applaud uh, the corporal for writing because she put, she put herself out there and she said, I screwed up. Yeah, I, I love that one. I love yeah. that one, too. And I also I, I want to point out to our listeners that uh, and I said this the other day at, uh, at an event that, you know, proceedings it used to be perceived as officer country. It is not. It is absolutely not. Some of the best stuff that we're that we're publishing is by enlisted authors. And Corporal Hayashi's piece uh, was one that caught my eye this month as it was we were going through the editing process. I, I love that piece. And I uh, applaud her bravery and her her willingness to, you know, to talk about her mistake. That was great. Uh, Bill, any thoughts on Hayashi's piece? Well, uh, uh, you know, only uh, it's a great piece that I, uh, I, I was tagged with uh, contacting the winners of that. And um, it was a little hard to get a hold of her because she thought uh, she didn't believe the email that she won. She thought it was spam and uh, she was uh, overjoyed um, that she won and uh, that her voice could be heard. So it was really, it was a, it's one of those moments that makes you proud to work here. Yeah, that is kind of a funny thing, right? We uh, we reach out to our the the winners, and I think she took what third place in the enlisted prize essay contest this year with that one. Um, but we yes, reach sir. out to them and let them know that they've won a contest, you know, which comes with in in some cases, you know, up to five thousand dollars in prize money. And often the reaction can be to those emails: "Is this real, or is this like a Nigerian prince offering me a <laughs> bank account?" You know, so you get some of that. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Bill, what was one of the 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 highlights for you of this issue? Well, keeping on the theme of uh, enlisted authors, uh, Chief Petty Officer uh, Chris Miner. Uh, John is the his uh, formal name, but he goes by Chris. Um, won the uh, Naval Intelligence Essay Contest this year. Uh, this is not his first win. He won the Enlisted Prize Essay Contest uh, what a couple of years ago, Bill. And um, so the point of this is a little bit. Uh, if you're not in the intelligence community, uh, naval intelligence community, it might be a little uh, foreign to you. But uh, the Navy. Um, buys intelligence uh, billets, right? So Naval Aviation and um, buys a lot of them. Um, and they those billets are on aircraft carriers and on uh, in, in squadrons and on air wing staffs. Um, so when you go to a carrier that's deployed, you go into the Intel Center and you see a whole bunch of activity with lots of intelligence uh, specialists um, and intelligence officers. Uh, similarly, you would you'd see a fair amount on a big deck amphibious ship. These are bought by the surface Navy. But beyond those big deck ships, um, smaller ships and submarines, uh, well, smaller ships have one intelligence professional on the ship and it's an E6 or E7. It's called independent duty intelligence specialist. Um, 
Chief Miner just completed uh, a tour as an independent duty intelligence specialist on the USS Arlington with the island class. Um, and he's off to a cruiser, I believe, to do yet another one back to back. Um, the article is about, hey, I don't, I didn't get any training for this. Uh, I don't get enough training and um, I don't get enough support. You're alone and unafraid out here. Um, and uh, the intelligence community, the naval intelligence community needs to do a better job of screening uh, sailors to do these jobs because not everybody is really cut out to be that one person out there and also um, training them and providing them support. Um, so it's a, it's a really good piece. Um, it, I would recommend it to not, obviously not just intelligence professionals, but surface warfare officers that are going to serve on these ships or are serving or will serving or will command someday smaller ships to understand the perspective uh, that he brings to this. So Naval Intelligence is working on this, um, and the head of uh, Naval Intelligence uh, just last Friday, and Bill was there with me, um, said we are working on that, and she called out that article in, uh, in particular. Yeah, and uh, our readers might remember Chris Miner's uh, winning essay from a couple of years, which was titled "Every Sailor a Damage Controlman," which was had wasn't wasn't a narrow topic like this one. It was a broad topic about how the Navy, writ large, everybody in the Navy's got to get ready for serious at sea damage control. You know, in a pure adversary fight, it was great, great piece. So, uh, it, great, great point. And it was—it's always good to see him. We saw him at the Naval Intelligence Professionals Lunch, where we recognized the winners. And yeah, uh, and it was nice to hear Admiral Eschbach mention that. Hey, she mentioned the article. She mentioned Chief Miner, and she mentioned we're on this. We are working on 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 making the changes. Um, I wanted to uh, to talk about one. You know, one of our favorite uh, columns every month is called Leadership Forum. And in the November issue, uh, the the uh, article is titled "Lead from the Front, Not Always" by Captain Michael Hansen, U.S. Marine Corps. And I found this one to be really interesting because you know you have this when you go through the Naval Academy. I remember it, you know, viscerally for me. And a lot of uh, of military leadership training, it's this idea is kind of pounded into you. You know, you got to lead from the front. You got to set the example. You got to be in front. And um, and he says. Uh, not always, right? Not always that you have to lead from the point of impact. Uh, and so for the a rifleman out there, he's got, you know, you got to be on point with your rifle. You got to be in position to, you know, to impact the fight, but the leader, the platoon commander or the company commander perhaps should not be on point. It should be at the point where in which he can, he or she can have the most impact on his or her unit on the tactical effect of that unit uh, it's just a really well-written piece. Um, another one, you know, this leadership forms, two pages, uh, quick read, but it's just, it makes you think and, and re, you know, sort of reevaluate some of the, 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 the underlying assumptions I think we all probably have about leadership. But wait a second, sometimes you got to think about where you need to be to most affect the fight or most affect the problem that you're going after. Brian, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, well, that was a really interesting article. One of the points he made for me that visually stood out in his writing was talking about kicking down a door and being the first one into a room. And that's often the most dangerous job in, in that particular task for people. And if you're the leader going through the door and and it's dangerous for a reason, you leave a you leave a team without leadership entirely and just we've all seen it in movies and video games and things i mean i have 
zero experience of anything in uniform, but I know what that looks like, or at least I have a mental image of it. And I thought uh, that was one of the most visceral parts of it for me was getting that level. Uh, that's what made it good writing aside from yeah, the right. leadership lesson. Right. It, it, it sets a great example in your head. You can think about, okay, I know I know exactly what he means and, and what this point is about. Um, Bill, did you have another one you wanted to talk about? Uh, yes, the, the Marine Corps Essay Contest uh, third prize winner, uh, which the title of the article is Reimagining Recruiting to Prevent Sexual Assault by Lieutenant Julie Rowland, uh, U.S. Navy. Um, so first first off, for our listeners, you know, we um, the, the, all the essay contest submissions come in to us. In this case, we had a very high number this year from Marine Corps. On 97, I think. Seven, right. Correct. Um, Good. That's good. Uh, a little tough on the editing staff, but we get through it. And uh, um, and then the, we usually neck it down to somewhere between eight and ten, um, you know, tops. And then they go out to an independent um, judging panel that, uh, in this case, was uh, consisted of Marine Marine Corps officers and um, and a senior enlisted. So um, so we didn't pick the top three. Uh, we did call it down. Uh, this one one third. Um, it's already, you know, it's any of these articles um, are, can be a bit of a lightning rod for uh, uh, people. Um, so Julie's uh, first takes you through kind of where the Marine Corps has been on this issue and not in a good place, really, um, for the past, I don't know, uh, decade at least, maybe longer. Um, and uh, some of the statistics. One one I would point out is because um, some people get defensive right away when someone makes a claim that the Marine Corps is just lagging the problem or is uh, not addressing it uh, forcefully enough that they're not getting after the culture um, that, that allows this stuff to happen. Um, the Facebook United or the Marine United uh, scandal on the Facebook site that what they were sharing photos of, of female Marines and something that's pretty uh, horrific. Um, that Facebook site had 30,000 members. Okay. I want people to understand that the enlisted force in the Marine Corps active is about 165,000. Uh, but most of the people on the site were young, uh, under 25. If you take that out of it, that's 110,000. If you remove the, uh, the female Marines, uh, they weren't part of that site. That's about another 10,000. So you're down to about a hundred thousand people, 30,000 of the hundred thousand Marines in the Marine Corps were in that Facebook site. So if anyone who thinks that what that the problem wasn't widespread and endemic now, they're not committing sexual assault, you know, most of them and stuff like that. But it's a culture where women feel undervalued. Um, they don't feel like they're part of the team. Uh, they're not treated like they're part of the team. And Julie makes the point that that all matters, right? That all matters in, in the larger uh, scheme of things. Um, so last point on is that she is recommending um, a, a, I guess, rather new idea, at least in our pages, which is the Marine Corps needs to do a better job on the recruiting side to screen out potential abusers. Um, and she goes through kind of some of the uh, the research that shows that, you know, people that have had problems with the law, people that have uh, come from abuse, abusive homes are more likely to uh, commit, you know, sexual assault um, or other uh, crimes in the military. So that's a challenge when you can't meet your recruiting goal um, uh, in the current climate, um, you know, so just another hurdle. So that's the uh, the gist of the article. 
Yeah, this is a tough article. It's a tough one to read. Uh, for I, I wasn't a Marine officer, but I, I love the Marines, and we have Marines on our Ed board. We have, you know, uh, I've served with Marines. I've been on amphibious ships. I've got Naval Academy classmates who who served as Marines, and so this is not an easy article to read. Um, it, it, it took some dare for her to write it. It took a little dare, quite honestly, for us to publish it. And I'm sure, as you pointed out, Bill, the judges on our on our Marine Corps essay contest were all the Marines on our editorial board, one former Marine from our editorial board, the, the two Marines who are on our board of directors. And we also had, I think, at least one of our Coast Guard and Navy members of our editorial board. So all the uh, all the the judges of this of this uh, essay contest, most of them were active duty. Most of them were uh, were current Marines. A couple of retired Marines, and so I, you know, it it always amazes me when to see what the judges pick of the top, you know, ten or so that we send them. They chose this one, right? It wasn't it wasn't you know Bill and Brian and and uh, and Bill picking this one as a, as a top one. Uh, so it, it's a tough one to read. It's it is a hard hard issue. Uh, one of the statistics that she throws out in it is that one in the United States, in our society writ large, one in six women will be the victim of sexual assault. As the father of three daughters, that is terrifying to me. Uh, one in six women will be the, the victim of sexual assault or rape. And the statistics in the military are higher. The statistics so far in the Marine Corps are the highest of the military. So that's why this this problem keeps getting talked about. Uh, and that's why we put it in our pages. And I, I, I know that that's why she wrote about it. Uh, anyway, it, it's not an easy issue, you know, but but proceedings isn't for easy, easy issues. Yeah, Bill, I was going to add, I mean, one, this is probably the most thoroughly researched and yes. article I've, I've ever read as an evaluator. Yep. Uh, the, every third sentence or or more had a footnote on it. So this was this is not somebody who was just, you know, pulling out random thoughts and observations. Um, but the second thing is, this is what proceedings exists to do. It, yep. it, it, it doesn't exist to say, Ura or Hua or well, that's the army, but uh, I don't know what the navy's. Go navy. is, but uh, go navy, beat army. Um, but it, it doesn't exist to run that. I mean, a little bit of that now and again is fine. It exists to say, hey, here's a problem, and we need to solve it. And this is the current problem to solve, or one of the current problems to solve. Tactics, uh, shipbuilding plans, strategy, those are all things that appear all the time in our pages. But this is an issue that fundamentally affects the one team, one fight mentality. And if that isn't what proceedings exists to do, then I'm not sure what we're doing here at all. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thanks for bringing that one up, Bill. Really important. Um, we're running a little short on time. I want to touch on one more article uh, which is the American Sea Power article from this month, which was written by Captain Scott Mobley. And uh, Scott is, uh, you know, in my opinion, he's a national treasure. He's a retired Navy captain. Uh, he is. Uh, he was a nuclear uh, qualified surface warfare officer, commanded uh, ships, reactor officer. He now teaches history at the Univers University of Wisconsin. He's also the author of a great book that the Naval Institute published in 2018 called Progressives in Navy Blue. Uh, but this article touches on the importance of the strategic culture in, in the Navy and his basic triangle, if you will, the, the three-legged stool that he describes is that when the Navy has 
has been successful, when it's been at its best, and he, he cites the, the interwar years, getting ready for World War II and in World War II, and then he cites again kind of the late 70s through the 1980s with the, the maritime strategy, and you know we've had John Lehman on the, on the podcast, and Lehman wrote about how the Navy kind of recovered in that period, seven, late 70s to, to late 80s. Um, but Mobley uh, says there, there's, it's a three-legged stool, this strategy. There's, there's the operators. Uh, there are the, uh, the technocrats, if you will. So that might be the, the Hyman Rickovers of the Navy. Uh, really, really important to understand how to engineer these complex things that go to sea, that we go to sea and fight on. And then there's also the strategists. And that Mobley essentially is saying that for the last 20, 30 years, really, since the end of the Cold War, the strategists have taken a back seat and the Navy has been run by operators and it's been run by technocrats. And we are where we are now vis-a-vis -vis the high end threat, vis-a-vis -vis the pacing threat, the China threat um, because of that imbalance. And then he offers some, some insights and ideas on how to get that balance back. So uh, it's a very important uh, piece. You know, uh, I won't, I won't quote the, um, you know, the often the, the, the often cited thing about, you know, culture eating, uh, you know, uh, strategy. Right. Um, but but this is a, a, a terrific one. And it, it provides some real insights and history into the Navy's uh, strategic culture that, I, that were new to me uh, or, you know, at least in, in a lot of cases uh, re reminded me of things that I'd forgotten. Uh, it's a terrific piece. And I, uh, I commend Scott for it. I commend the work that he's done. Uh, thinking about this and, um, you know, the American Sea Power Project continues and, and it keeps hitting on all cylinders, in my view. We, we keep getting great pieces from authors uh, every single month. So, uh, Bill or Brian, want to jump on that one? No, I, I would just add, I mean, yes, it's a very good piece. I particularly enjoyed the um, part about the, I don't know, Rick over in the technocratic culture versus the strategic culture. We, uh, Bill and I, came through the Naval Academy very kind of in the heat of this. I mean, I'm a recover was gone by then, but uh, it was a very, very uh, big issue. And um, John Lehman, Secretary Lehman at the time, you know, battled with Rick over and uh, about uh, what, you know, what do we need? What's the priority for Naval officers? And, uh, you know, the, the fights were legendary. Um, it, it affected the curriculum at the Naval Academy and their both their visions of what you know, what is important. Um, Admiral Staridis talks about how, you know, his very technically focused major at the Naval Academy was great for like the first five years in his career, but <laughs> it didn't help him much uh, past that. Um, so um, I really like that part. Brian? I agree. I, I think it's an interesting distinction that he made, sort of lumping those category or, or splitting those categories apart and uh, I, I have a history degree and I have an engineering degree so I straddle the STEM versus humanities uh, debate all the time. I don't think either one either part of those things are superior um, and I think any culture that gets out of balance in that that says we value this more than the other is losing out on something. Um, it's not it, it, it's not always clear in the moment what is lost, but doing problem sets and equations all night, every night in college and spending Saturday in the library doing equations prepares you for a lot of things, but it doesn't invite you to pause and reflect. 
and uh, this, the totality of the Navy needs both those things. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and uh, you know, Bill mentioned that the, the battle between uh, Lehman and Rickover was legendary back in the 80s. Uh, and Rickover had a, had a tremendously strong uh, support base or power base based in Congress, right? Um, but but that, that discussion has played out in the pages of proceedings ever since then and even before then. You know, there's a constant, I, I can't remember the article we published just a couple of years ago on this, but it was, you know, to the, the, the decision of, you know, whether the surface community should be uh, whether they should be navigation, you know, bridge folks, bridge focused, navigator focused, maritime focused, or engineers, right? So there's that tension even within communities. Uh, but but to your point, Brian, about the balance, you know, and this three-legged stool, right? To be a successful naval officer, not just as an ensign through lieutenant, but also more more senior, uh, you've got to be operationally focused. You've got to have your time at sea. You have to know about uh, you know, the operational challenges and how to succeed at sea and in, uh, you know, perhaps combat, uh, you know, environment, warfighting focused. Um, but you got to be able to think strategically. Uh, and you've also got to be somewhat of a technocrat because, you know, we operate really complex. I, I you know, I visited the John Warner a couple of weeks ago when she, and I know you did too, Brian, when she was here, thanks to Jeff Vandenangle, the XO of the ship. Yeah. But, but, you know, going, you know, seeing that ship and I didn't even get back to the reactor compartment but seeing the complexity of that warship nuclear reactor um, the the advanced sensors the torpedo room the weapons the vertical launch cells the and knowing what she had done on her seven month deployment you know that requires operational skill excellence it requires technical excellence and the Navy's got to have all three of those in in balance so uh, Anyway, this uh, this month's uh, American Sea Power Project, uh, Scott Mobley, just a great piece. I just add, you know, by many accounts, Alfred Thayer Mahan wasn't much of a seaman uh, <laughs> as, a, as a captain, uh, but I doubt he would have been as good a strategic thinker and historian of naval things if he hadn't been a seaman at all. Great point. Great point. Well, we're, we're uh, running a little long on time here. Uh, Bill, Brian, any uh, parting shots or thoughts before we sign off? Um, I would just say that um, I, I love doing the Marine Corps issue. Um, I, I think it, if I had to rate the services um, in their ability to be open and honest and encourage critical uh, critique of, of policies and things, I think the Marine Corps, in my view, leads the way. They, they're very vocal. Um, they, they're not afraid to, you know, junior officers, senior enlisted, uh, mid-grade officers, senior officers are not afraid to challenge the status quo in proceedings and elsewhere in the Gazette. Um, and uh, the, some of the other services, I think, need to do better with that, some, uh, particularly some of the communities in the Navy that just are, seem reluctant to, to, uh, to, you know, sound off and be uh, speak truth to power, so to speak. Yeah, great point. Brian? Yeah, that bias toward action translates into the action of the keyboard and the pen sometimes. And I think Marines appear to be less afraid of putting their foot wrong when they put pen to paper, uh, virtually or otherwise. It, it's, it is an outstanding issue to work on to edit because we invariably wind up leaving behind some articles that in any other themed issue would have been featured prominently in it because we have so much good content for it. It's a, gr it's a great 
great pause in the calendar every year to sit back and absorb fully. 100%. Yeah, we're never lacking for Marine Corps content for, for that issue. It's just great. Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you this week by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision. What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered vision care exams for all members, access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. Plans start as low as $12 a month. See what you can do at bcbsfepvision.com. If you enjoy the show, like us, subscribe to our channel, tell your friends, become a member of the Naval Institute at usni.org forward slash join. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.